Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. We, a few months ago, two or three months ago, spoke with two mayors. One from Niagara Falls, Ontario, the other from Niagara Falls, New York. Mayor Jim Diodati joins us from Niagara Falls, Ontario. Ontario, Mr. Mayor, how are you? I'm doing well, Roy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you back on the program. And Mayor Restaino, good to have you back. How are you, sir? It's nice to be here, Roy. Thank you for having me on. So let me start with you, Mayor Restaino. The 75 members of Congress calling on President Biden to open the border arbitrarily. Do you join them in that call? Uh, I appreciate their anxiety. I join in their anxiety, but I don't think it should be a unilateral move. I, I never think that that makes sense. So what, from your side of the border, on the United States side of the border, Mayor Restaino, what are you observing? What is your uh, expectation of Canada? And then part three of the question is, what's the effect that the border closure is having on your community? Well, uh what we're observing, obviously, is that, um, you know, the tourist um, movement uh, has been impacted to some extent by the fact that our Canadian neighbors aren't able to enjoy um, what we have to offer um, on the U.S. side. Um, what am I expecting from the Canadian government? I suspect that what I would hope for is that they would begin to look at, I know that there was some easing with regard to Canadian um, residents being able to move without the quarantine and all of the other um, issues that were there. I just think that we should get more, we should be smarter um, and begin to phase this in as we've done even here in New York State. I don't expect the border to be just sort of wide open, but as people are vaccinated, and I understand the numbers are climbing in uh, Canada, as people are fully vaccinated, they should be added to that list of um, individuals that can travel safely. We have the technology that allows us to do that. And I think that that helps border uh, and customs to be able to verify the information. So it's not outside of our reach. And what do I think as far as the, um, what, what I think is the most um, critical piece for so many of us that live in border town cities is that uh, there are families who have been separated. And, you know, Mayor Diodati and I have talked about this over and over again. There are people on both sides of this border that, especially here in Niagara Falls, that really enjoy not just the free uh, travel and commerce, but also the ability to continue to be in touch physically, personally, with um, with family members on both sides. And, you know, it's been over a year now that that hasn't happened for so many of us. Yeah. Uh, Mayor Diodati, you heard the Prime Minister's quote. He wants to open the border, but he doesn't want to slide backward. What is your message to Mr. Trudeau, and then part B of the question, I asked you this, uh, I think it was three months ago you were on with us, and you talked about the economic challenges Niagara Falls, Ontario is facing because of the border closure. Have things gotten substantially more difficult for your community over those last two to three months since we last talked? 
Well, Roy, the first thing we would ask the Prime Minister to, to do is provide us with a plan, a transparent plan, well in advance, so that we can plan. Because up until now, it's been more pieces of a puzzle. And for a community like Niagara Falls, there's a great deal of planning. You know, we go by the Pareto principle here, as do many other areas, better known as the 80-20 rule. 80% of the revenue comes in 20% of the year, that being the July 1st, 4th weekend to Labor Day. And those funds need to sustain businesses throughout the quieter seasons, like a squirrel collecting his nuts so that he's surviving throughout the winter. And knowing that we've just come off a very, very difficult year last year, people are just hanging on. If it wasn't for the government bailouts and subsidies, they would have been out of business a long time ago. So their only chance is to make hay while the sun is out. And we're asking the prime minister, provide us with this plan. Base it, of course, on science, not political science, and make sure that we all have a chance to weigh in. Our best guess is that we expect things on the 21st of July to open up in some way. At the very least, we hope that restrictions loosen to allow anyone that's fully vaccinated to cross that border. And of course, the threat is always that the U.S. goes it alone. And I know Mary Stano is such a gentleman. And, uh, and I know that's not our first choice, clearly. But if that's what it takes to push us into action, then so be it. And as far as impact, you know, not having our American friends and neighbors and family visiting us has a huge economic impact. Tourism is right up there with oxygen in its importance. And approximately 25% of the tourists that come to Niagara Falls of the 14 million come from the U.S. and they represent 50% of the revenue. So the Americans spend large. We definitely miss them. And I can tell you, in my community, I've got 40,000 people. That's a 4-0. 40,000 people that count on tourism to pay their bills, to put food on the table. And they're really counting on the prime minister doing the right thing and making sure that we do not miss this opportunity for any reasonable reasons, because we know the science right now, as of today, we're at about 79% single doses for adults and 53% uh, with two doses. So we are absolutely where we need to be for the 21st of July to happen. So we're hoping for an announcement in the coming days. So, Mayor Diodati, what I hear you saying to Mr. Trudeau is there is no reason for the land border to be closed any longer, correct? That's exactly right. And, and Roy, that's even according to his own federal experts, uh, Dr. Ian Bogich. He's come out and said that it is a very, very low risk for fully vaccinated people to cross the border. And I think he needs to rely on his experts and do the right thing. Mayor Restaino, is there a, a, an ad hoc group or an informal group of border city mayors on both sides of the border who communicate with one another on a semi-regular basis beyond you and Mayor Diodati? Well, I know that, um, in fact, Jim and I took part in uh, a larger conversation with border mayors. But I do think um, as far as a, an organized association of us, um, no, uh, you know, we're not, we, we haven't put that together, but I don't know that that's necessarily needed. I mean, you know, the Fort Erie folks and the, and the mayor of Buffalo, um, we're all kind of very clear and consistent, I think, in our message. And, and Mayor Diodati hit the nail on the head. You really have to follow the science. It's what brought New York State from where it was um, a year ago 
now back to the point where in May of this year, things have really gotten back to um, as normal as it can be. So I think you follow the science, you do what's smart. We want it all to be smart and safe, but there really isn't anything holding us back. Would you say then, uh, Mayor Restaino, that this is perhaps the time for President Biden to call his friend, Mr. Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, and say, the time has run out, we are no longer going to accept this border being closed, do something or we will. Do you think it's time for that call from the President to the Prime Minister? If I, if I could have the opportunity to speak to President Biden, I would certainly urge him to um, make a clear um, message to the Prime Minister that much is suffering because of, as Mayor Diodati said, we're not necessarily following the science in this. So I, I, would, I would certainly strongly urge him to use his influence in, in the, in the, uh, on, on this continent to move the Prime Minister um, into the right direction. Mayor Diodati, would you echo that sentiment that maybe it's time for the President of the United States to make that call to the Prime Minister? Absolutely, I would. And as you mentioned earlier, he had 75 House members uh, say to uh, Prime President Biden that it's time. And I can tell you on this side of the border, uh, all the border city mayors been working closely with Minister Blair, our public safety minister. And we've all said the same thing. Uh, we want to do it safely. We want to do it right. Measure twice, cut once. But the science is there. The experts are telling us it's safe. There's a lot of people hurting in so many ways, mentally, by uh, death by suicide, domestic violence, financial ruin. There's a lot of peripheral negatives, unintended negatives coming out of this delay. It's time to, and the other thing too, Roy, is yes, we need to give time because all of these businesses need to prepare. They need to bring their staff back, order inventory, have time to train them and be ready because we want to give a great experience to our guests that come here and we need the time. It's not a light switch. It's a dimmer switch. And it needs to uh, be gradual. We need enough time to be ready for it. So I would hope that yesterday, President Biden called Prime Minister Trudeau and said, all right, it's time. Let's do it. The 21st is the target. Let's make it happen. Very disappointed when we found out earlier in the week that Jody Wilson-Raybould will not be running for re-election in Vancouver-Granville in the federal election. I didn't agree with Ms. Wilson-Raybould on a host of issues when she was the Attorney General. But I always had great respect for her as a truthful person, as a straightforward person. And that, of course, was borne out. Uh, we, The whole country witnessed and watched as the SNC-Lavalin um, case developed and the parliamentary hearings were held. So, in part, uh, her letter to the constituents this week uh, read, I would like to share some news. I'll not be running as a candidate in the next federal election to be the member of parliament for our riding of Vancouver-Granville. From my seat over the last six years, I've noticed a change in parliament, a regression. It has become more and more toxic and ineffective while simultaneously marginalizing individuals from certain backgrounds. Federal politics is, in my view, increasingly a disgraceful triumph of harmful partisanship over substantive action. In 2015, I ran to be the MP in our newly created riding of Vancouver-Granville to drive change on the critical issues facing our community and all Canadians, including Indigenous reconciliation, climate change, social and racial justice, and building an enduring economy in a rapidly shifting world. 
Fighting for transformative change on these matters is what I was doing before I became your MP, when I was the regional chief of British Columbia, and this is what I will continue to do in our community and across our country after my time as MP ends. So, there's the news. Jody Wilson-Raybould will not seek re-election. Now, she was a guest on this program three weeks ago. And we talked about a number of specific issues with Ms. Wilson-Raybould. And I want to play back some of what she said, and then we'll take some phone calls from you. The first thing I want to play for you, the first part I want to play, is when I asked her about Mr. Trudeau's 2018 declaration that there would be um, substantive change, transformative change, in the relationship between the federal government and the indigenous community. Have a listen. So I'll ask you this. Do you have faith in an inquiry into the discovery of the remains of 215 children in Kamloops at the residential school? Because you've called on Mr. Trudeau to uphold his commitment for transformative change in relations with indigenous people. Do you have confidence that this is going to be done uh, properly with with forethought and then proper follow-up and commitment to the whole issue? Well, I mean, I will say that, um, I mean, we have seen report after report, um, you know, dating back to 1996 with respect to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, which expressed um, the must-needed um, solutions um, facing Indigenous issues in this country through to having the Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports. Um, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, calls to action. And while I will say there has been some movement made, um, this government, this prime minister has not followed through on his promises and we need to hold him to account. So do I have trust um, or faith that something is going to move as a result? I hope so, but um, I think that um, for me, and I know many Indigenous leaders and Canadians across the country, that, that hope and that trust in this government and in this Prime Minister to do the right thing, to stop taking half measures or or just speaking in terms of promises uh, um, and turning that those promises into action, it has waned. <laughs> and um, I mean, I've said before, this Prime Minister still has time to do the right thing, to do the right thing by those 215 children and and residential school survivors um, across the country, to do the right thing in terms of transformative change. Um, he gave a speech, you probably heard it, on February the 14th, 2018, where he promised to move from denying Indigenous people's rights to actually um, implementing and recognizing those rights uh, and he has not moved on that transformative promise and we need to we need to hold them to account um also had an opportunity to uh, ask Ms. wilson Rebold about the title of her book which is going to be released in october and it's indian in the cabinet and indian is in quotation marks um so I want you to listen to what she had to say, because this is really telling to me. Listen, your upcoming book is titled Indian in the Cabinet, uh, with the word Indian in quotation marks. I don't want to read anything into it, but uh, I I have to ask you, I mean, I want to ask you, should I read into this that, uh, even though I said I wasn't going to, uh, that (laughs) as Federal Minister of Justice and Attorney General, were you treated differently or somehow, well, differently then, let's use that, 
Um, as the non, um, I don't know how to phrase this. As, let's let's put it this way: Were you treated differently because you were First Nation cabinet minister? Well, I think that I mean that's a lot of what I go into talking about in my book that's going to be released in, in October. Um, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that um, my experience um, as um, the first Indigenous Minister of Justice and Attorney General, um, uh, I mean, it had a definite had pros and it had its cons. Um, on the con side, I realized that no matter what table one sits around, there is a degree of marginalization based on um, racialized and gendered terms. I experienced this. Um, you know, I was incredibly proud um, to serve over three years as the Minister of Justice and Attorney General, and we were able to accomplish some significant things. Um, and I was of the view that I was placed in that role. Certainly, I have background and experience, but I came to that role with a different world view, um, being a proud Indigenous person in Canada. And, um, you know, the status quo was something or is something that is very entrenched and different world views or different ways of looking at things um, based on consensus-based decision-making, based on not having um, partisan considerations, but actually having meaningful discussions around issues and bringing forward um, you know, different solutions was not something that was fully embraced. And, and that was a realization that I um, certainly had and still have um, and recognize that the word Indian um, used in the title of my upcoming book is, is um, um, something that I experienced in being treated like an Indian versus a proud Indigenous person. She is inspiring to listen to. Such a incredibly well-spoken, well-thought-out person. When Jody Wilson Raybould forms a sentence, it has a reason for existing. Other people, not so much. Story on Global News by Amanda Connolly, February 7, 2019. Prime Minister begins this way. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says a report by the Globe and Mail that his office tried to get the former Justice Minister to prevent a trial of SNC-Levelin is false but he refused to give clear answers when pressed by reporters on whether he or his office tried to influence the prosecution of the case more broadly. But he said that any report that his office tried to get the former justice minister to prevent a trial of SNC-Lavalin is false. I talked to Jody Wilson-Raybould about that. The nation followed each moment uh, during the parliamentary hearings on how you were treated by the prime minister and the prime minister's office as federal minister of justice and Attorney General, when you refused to interfere with the federal prosecutors and push them to agree to pursue a deferred prosecution agreement with the uh, SNC-Lavalin, which Mr. Trudeau and the PMO demanded of you, this is what we, how much we know. The conflict of interest in Parliamentary Ethics Commission was very blunt in his assessment of what you faced. Mario Dion wrote, mm -hmm. in part, the authority of the Prime Minister and his office was used to circumvent, undermine, and ultimately attempt to discredit the decision um, of the Director of Public Prosecutions, as well as the authority of Ms. Wilson-Raybould as the Crown's Chief Law Officer. What can you tell us that uh, about what she's... What, I know there's this limited amount that you can share with us, but what can you tell us? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I I do uh, not to continue to plug this book, but I do go into it and and um, a little bit um, in terms of SNC in my upcoming book. But what can I tell you? I, I mean, I was um, and I've reflected on this so much, catapulted into the national spotlight um, and did my very public walk from the front of the government benches to the back corner of the House of Commons. And and I have to say, Roy, I would I would not change anything that I did. I was very confident and understood my role as the attorney general and my role being to not have political people, the prime minister or otherwise, interfere in a prosecution um, and standing up for the rule of law, which is which is what I did and I would, would do again. Um, I, I think it's a, a something that we as Canadians need to consider how there can be potential wrongdoing. And Mario Dion, as you said, did come out and was very forthright with his findings. Um, but how um, politics, how the institutions of government work in this country, wherein you have a small group of people, the executive, the cabinet running the country, and sometimes um, in those closed-door discussions um, where decisions are made, sometimes the, and this is where I can't get into a lot of detail, but the reality of cabinet confidentiality is used as a shield to hide activity that is taking place. So there is some of what uh, Ms. Wilson-Rebold was able to tell us about the SNC-Lavalin situation. Now remember... Amanda Connolly's story, February 7, 2019, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says a report by the Globe and Mail that his office tried to get the former Justice Minister to be prevented trial of SNC-Lavalin is false. As a matter of fact, have a listen. The allegations in the Globe story this morning are false. Neither the current nor the previous Attorney General uh, was ever directed by me or by anyone in my office uh, to uh, take a a decision uh, in this matter. You can have a look and see what Mario Dion had to say about that, the Parliamentary Ethics Commissioner. And you just heard Jody Wilson-Raybould. There'll be more in her book, Indian in the Cabinet, Telling Truth to Power. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in this country as far as the pandemic is concerned. Today, Saskatchewan is opening up. Masks will no longer be required everywhere. Maybe not at all. Uh, Alberta, July the 1st, Alberta did that, and uh, British Columbia last Monday, or last weekend, changed the rules significantly as far as restrictions concerning COVID are are in force. Ontario and Manitoba, and we're talking to the five provinces where this program airs, Ontario and Manitoba are moving their schedule ahead, it appears, their reopening schedule ahead, but nowhere near where the western provinces are, west from Saskatchewan on west to BC. So let's talk about this. And uh, we also have Pfizer saying we need a third COVID vaccine. And joining us from uh, Saskatchewan, Dr. Joseph Blondo, clinical microbiologist, head of clinical microbiology at Saskatoon's Royal University 
a hospital and at the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Blondo has been a guest on this program several times. Thanks for coming back on, Dr. Blondo. And uh, what, are, what are your thoughts about Saskatchewan reopening today? Are you in favor? Do you have concerns? Well, you know, Roy, the, uh, every government needs a plan. And uh, the government of Saskatchewan, like other Canadian provincial governments, had uh, looked at the evidence uh, that was available, um, you know, what were the case numbers, what were the trends, uh, what were the vaccination rates, and then they came up with this, you know, multi-step plan to say, okay, this is time to sort of reopen. And um, and I think it, it, it was based on a lot of evidence, and, and I'm actually in favour of it. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think that we still have to caution folks that the virus still out there. There are some uh, still risk associated, you know, activities. And I think people, as we move forward, need to keep their wits about it. When it comes to the wearing of masks, that's a contentious issue. Uh, certainly in some circles in this country, I think the majority of people I've talked to have said it's time to do away with masks. We want to get on with our lives. What is your sense as far as the removal of the requirement to wear masks in almost all scenarios is concerned? Well, you know, a mask is one of the uh, uh, the, the recommended um, uh, public health measures that were put in place in order to keep people from either uh, transmitting the virus or, or receiving the virus from somebody else. And and masks were used in, in you know in collaboration with things like physical or social distancing. And uh, what I've been telling people who have been asking, saying, well, I'm a little bit apprehensive, perhaps, of taking my mask off right away, then I've been saying that, that you should really just judge your own comfort level. And if you still feel that you want to be using a mask, then feel free to use one. And, you know, nobody's going to laugh at you. Um, I think that if it's the right decision for you, then go ahead and do it. And if you want to have the freedom of not having a mask on, then maybe be aware of how close you are to other individuals and try and maintain, you know, sort of that two meter or six foot, seven foot different uh, distance between people. And I think if, and then if you're fully vaccinated, I, I think that helps as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Blondeau, as a microbiologist, what does it say to you when Pfizer is calling for a third jab? Yeah, really interesting. I think what they're doing is uh, they're, they're saying, you know, uh, we think that uh, the level of neutralizing antibody uh, is actually important. And over time, we know uh, to this uh, family of viruses that antibody levels sort of decrease or they wane. And I think what Pfizer is saying is that, you know, based on the evidence that they have, as antibody levels might start to drop, uh, having that booster is just to guarantee that you have a sufficient uh, you know, amount of antibody on board in the event that you happen to re-encounter the virus or, or even perhaps encounter one of the variant strains. There's also some evidence, though, Roy, that... Um, that the ability of the immune system in our bodies to continue to produce antibody is perhaps a little bit more robust than was previously thought. And so what that means is that in the event that you should encounter this virus again in the future, and it's recognized as foreign by your body, then you may actually have a very robust and quicker response to produce antibodies, and that in turn will protect you as well. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about that, and uh, let's talk about this uh, issue with the... uh the mutants or the variants, they seem to be a continuing issue. It's not going to end, is it, Dr. Blondo? We've talked about that before. It's endemic now. Is it helpful, do you think, to inform Canadians each time a new variant appears, like Lambda, we were told, were 11 cases in this country? I think people will start to tune out, particularly if they're vaxxed. Yeah, I mean, I think people want to know what risks are, right? They want to know, am I safe? Is my family safe? Are my children safe? Whatever the case may be. And so I think as these viruses evolve, and if they happen to emerge, if there's a risk, 
then I think that risk needs to be communicated. Do we have to know about every single variant uh, if, if there's good evidence that it's not a legitimate concern? No, I don't think we do. And so I think that uh, as we continue to move forward, I think the government has to develop a communication strategy that says, okay, this is the type of information that we want to be uh, spreading and sharing widely within the population. And other information, perhaps we don't need to because it's really not a concern to the general population. So, so I really think that communication strategy has to continue to evolve. Do you have concerns about what may happen as the weather gets colder in this country? And keeping in mind that we now have an increasingly vaccinated population, are there concerns about a fourth wave or is that something that we're just going to have to deal with as an endemic reality? I think uh, my, own, my own sense is that a fourth wave, perhaps not, but certainly I think we expect that we might see outbreaks uh, particularly amongst unvaccinated populations. And I think that uh, going forward, what public health may, may decide to do is to keep a very, very close eye on, on you know, positive cases, try and uh, very, very rapidly determine whether it's a large group or a small group, and then move in the containment so that it doesn't uh, move to a broader population. And once again, I think that risk, in my opinion, is, is probably going to be larger in the unvaccinated population. Canadian Olympic athletes are off to Tokyo. And uh, joining us is Jean-Vierre Lalonde. She is um, in the athletics crew, and her specialty is the 3,000-meter steeplechase. Uh, she's connected with Cadillac Fairview and uh, their celebration wall, so you can visit cadillacfairview.com forward slash celebration wall. At certain Cadillac Fairview shopping centers on specific dates, you'll be able to deliver your message of support for Canada's athletes and a local artist will transcribe your message to the celebration wall. And there'll be no fans, no spectators at the Olympic Games, so the celebration wall will be significant. Jean-Vierre, thank you very much for, for taking the time. When are you leaving? Um, I'm heading out. So I'm actually not in Canada right now. We're, we're at a pre-training camp, but we'll be heading uh, to Japan on, uh, on July 19th. So, yeah, Coming, it's coming up, counting down the days. <laughs> so how exciting is it for you as the Olympic athlete? You were in the 16 games in Rio, which were sort of mm -hmm. normal games with so many fans in attendance. But is there any diminishing as far, as far as the excitement is concerned, excitement level, because there won't be any fans in Tokyo? I mean, it'll be a different game as it's a different time in the world at, at, at present time. However, you know, honestly, once you step on the line, for me, in terms of, in terms of competition, once I step onto the track, it remains the same competition. Uh, you know, it's the same spirit. It's the same uh, collection of global community coming together to represent, um, you know, sport and uh, partnership. And I think, ultimately, once we step on the line, it, it is the same competition It'll be sad not to be able to hug my family at the end of the line. And, um, you know, but at the same time, I know that everyone is safe. And when I come home, um, we'll be able to celebrate at that point. So, um, yeah, looking forward to um, celebrating with, with everyone and, um, and listening to those messages of support. Because, honestly, they, 
you do feel them once you're once you're at the game and once you're stepping onto the start line. Well, talk to us a little bit about this international community presence at the Olympic Games. We've all watched those of us who aren't sufficiently skilled to participate as athletes at the Olympic Games, but we've seen the coming together of athletes from all over the world and this this great communal sense among these young people. What is it like to be part of the parade of nations? I believe that's what it's called, and then of the closing ceremonies. What's that like? It's pretty incredible um, to be able to celebrate, you know, just global connection and uh, to make friends from around the world. And, you know, we get to see each other in competition um, during outside of the Olympics as well. But to be able to come in and see, you know, wear the Team Canada uniform and represent all of the diverse co- communities across Canada and to, um, you know, step on the line and and then meet and hear other people's stories and learn from them and uh, and compete ultimately for um, you know for victory but also to just to represent our, our country with pride and I think um, you know seeing all the different athletes all the different type of athletes and just the passion and the courage and the determination that they've uh, put into to their sport to uh, be able to represent their country is just so um, inspiring. And, uh, you know, I was inspired as a kid to watch the Olympic Games. Um, and now I'm inspired as an athlete to be able to participate and uh, also to be able to represent um, our communities with pride. And you are certainly in the elite of your sport twice early. You're in the, the Olympic finals and then the IAAF uh, finals as well. Tell us a bit about the 3,000 meter steeplechase. We've, we've seen it. It looks like a very challenging and exhausting event. How do you prepare and and train for that? And during a race, do you run your own race against yourself, or do you run against opponents? How does it work? Um, yeah, always racing against opponents. So um, you know, it, it is it is a race. Ultimately, um, it's a very tactical, tactical and technical combination. So for anyone who doesn't know what the three thousand meter steeplechase is. Um, it's essentially a long-distance hurdle race with um, barriers that don't move. So um, where if you hit a hurdle, they'll fall down. The barriers are stuck in place. Some people think it's it's funny to refer to them as roadblocks. Um, so it's essentially running around a track and jumping over roadblocks. And then there's also a water pit to kind of mimic the river. Um, and so we it's uh, three kilometers. It takes about... Uh, nine to minutes to nine and a half minutes to run, and um, that it's yeah. It make you have to run prelims, so you have to run a, a pre-event, and then you make it into finals. I've made it into um, yeah. I was representing Canada in the 2016 uh, Olympic finals as well as a few World Championship finals, and so ultimately, once you get to the finals, um, it's just a race for place and because there are these barriers that come up every 60 meters or so, um, you do have to kind of jostle your position and, um, and then ultimately run as fast as you can while also jumping over things. It's just and, amazing. Uh, so it can become, there's been a lot of crashes, there's a lot of falls, but at the same time, um, it is a very technical event because you have to be a good hurdler to get over the barriers. And uh, so it's very exciting to watch. It's probably... Um, you know, if you're watching track and field, the 100 meters is really exciting, but it's 10 seconds. But in a 10-minute race, you know, watching the steeplechase is definitely um, going to bring your heart up and down. 
and uh, you'll feel like you're racing it with us. So I, I encourage everyone to watch. <laughs> well, I know I will be. Now I feel like I know you a little bit. So congratulations on again making the Canadian Olympic team. Wish you all the very best. Great success in Tokyo. And uh, we know a bit more about the event. I've always considered this to be one of the most, must be one of the most exhausting events in the Olympic Games. Wish you again all the very best. And we'll be looking for you, jean -Vier. Yeah, thank you very much, and, and uh, hello to everyone across Canada, and look forward to hearing your cheers from afar. You will for sure. Jean-Vierre Lalonde, running for uh, for Canada, Team Canada, and you can uh, go to CadillacFairview.com forward celebration wall, find out when the celebration wall will be in your area, and you can add your signature for the athletes. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.